Hello, I'm Abram Vanningham. And I'm Joanne Diaz. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. And today we'll be discussing Lucio Clifton's poem titled Spring Song. Joanne, would you like to read this poem for us? Yes, I'd be happy to. But before I do, I need to mention that I cannot do justice to this poem. Lucille Clifton was a force unto herself. She was a magnificent reader of her own work. I strongly encourage our listeners to listen to Lucille Clifton read her poem herself in the way that only she can. And of course, we'll put a link to the audio on our website so you can do that. Spring Song The green of Jesus is breaking the ground, and the sweet smell of delicious Jesus is opening the house, and the dance of Jesus' music has hold of the air, and the world is turning in the body of Jesus, and the future is possible. Boom. Just like that. It's a great poem. Before we get into the poem and how it's working, can you tell us a little bit about who Lucille Clifton is? Yes, she was born in 1936. She died in 2010. She was an incredibly prolific author. She published 13 collections of poetry. She also published 16 books for children, all of which are amazing. She was the recipient of so many awards, including two fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, a Lannan Award, the Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize. She was a chancellor of the Academy of American Poets. And truly, as I said before I read the poem, she was a singular voice in American poetry and magnificent in every way. This poem originally appeared in a book of hers called Good Woman, Poems and a Memoir, 1969 to 1980. And it comes really as the last of a series of 16 poems that are together called Some Jesus, where she walks through the Bible, through a whole bunch of biblical characters, starting with Adam and Eve and Cain and Moses and Solomon, Job, Daniel, John, Mary, Joseph, and so on. And the last poems in that um, that series end with Holy Week. So the last, the last ones are Palm Sunday, Good Friday, a poem called Easter Weekend, And then this is the last poem of the whole series, this one called Spring Song. But in order to understand that in context, we have to understand that that's one series among many series. And she wrote on all kinds of topics. And she was really committed to poetry about African-American experience, women's experience, all kinds of topics. You know, I'm really glad that we're reading this poem together today. Abram, you are the one who suggested this poem. And it's not one that I'm that familiar with. It's not one that I typically teach. So I teach Lucille Clifton's work in two contexts. I have like a medical humanities class called The Healing Art, and in that class, it's a literature class, and we read Clifton's poems about dialysis, about cancer, about surgery, about the body in pain and recovery, and her insistence on survival really resonates with students in that context of those poems. And then in my creative writing workshops, I frequently assign her poems that have to do with her recollections of youth and domesticity in a poem like At Last We Killed the Roaches, her attention to history and place and poetry of witness in a poem like Walnut Grove Plantation. She has plenty of scathing indictments of patriarchy, like her poem Wishes for Sons. So she has these poems. They're so varied. They're so rich. What's consistent across her decades of work is this really strong sense of hope and affirmation 
despite her struggles and challenges. But it's really nice to engage with this poem because it reminds me of how she engages with spirituality as well. She had six children herself, and, and she was really tied into the entire literary world. I mean, Langston Hughes published her early poems. Toni Morrison was her first book editor. So some good connections. You know, she had that amazing beginning to her literary career, but there were moments in her career where senior critics, senior writers would question some of her choices. Some critics were dismissive of some of her early work because she refrained from using standard capitalization and punctuation, but she insisted on this distinct style throughout her career. One of the things I love most about all of her work is how she makes in each insight look or, and feel so natural, so easy to arrive at, and yet the insights are so profound and so complex. And I just want to say one more thing, and fans of Lucille Clifton are going to know this about her, but perhaps people who are learning about her work for the first time might not know this. In interviews, she talks about her early career. She was mothering six ch young children at once, and that is no small feat no. for anyone, and certainly seemingly an insurmountable task for a practicing poet. But what she has said in interviews is that what she would do all day long while she was tending to those six young children is she would memorize drafts of her poems all day long, and then finally when those kids would finally get to bed, then she would write those poems down. I think what that necessitated was a clarity of thought and feeling and style. We look at these very tight, short poems of hers, and if you think about that background as you read these poems, you can really have an appreciation for the sense of urgency and clarity in them. I think one of the things that this poem brings out is that incredible sense of joy that she's able to convey, and even in poems that are quite difficult sometimes. Um, she has, as you said earlier, she, she never gave up on hope. She never gave up on joy in the midst of real struggle and real strife, which she was also very clear-eyed about. And mm. in this poem, you know, joy is a hard thing to do for po poets, I, I feel like. I, mm -hmm. it, it's hard to get it across without being sentimental. It's hard to get it across without being just sort of, um, without sounding a little naive sometimes. And one of the ways that I've seen it done well is with a certain use of repetition that comes out as almost a kind of incantation. And, and here, the word repeated uh, four times in this short poem is Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's worth thinking about what is the work of that word in this poem. And so I, I love this poem because if you went to Sunday school as a kid, as I did, uh, <laughs> Jesus was the answer to everything. It'd be like, who... <laughs> It would be like, who who met God in a burning bush? And the first answer would be like, some kid would be like, Jesus! But actually, no, that that was Moses, sorry. But but Jesus will be the right answer soon, you know? So, so, so you get that in this poem. It's just like the, the green of Jesus, the smell of Jesus, the dance of Jesus, like just Jesus is all over the place, you know? Yeah. And it's just her way of, it's it's like a word that stands in for joy, for abundance, for fullness, for new life. And yes, this is the last poem. It comes right after this poem she wrote on Easter. So there is certainly this connection to resurrection, this connection to Jesus springing up into new life. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that for the sake of this poem, you 
have to believe and say the bodily resurrection of Jesus to get the joy of this poem. This is a poem that's just about the newness and new life. I love what you're saying, and it really helps me think about, again, because this is such a tight poem, every word matters, every phrase matters, every line break matters even more. So that helps me understand even just the first couple of lines, the way she sets this poem up. The green of Jesus is breaking the ground. Isn't that a wonderful couple of lines. For, th there's so many things happening. Very simple, but not simplistic. Actually very rich. The green of Jesus. We can hear the assonance of the E. The green of Jesus is breaking the ground. I can hear two really strong beats that she's setting up in each of those lines. And for the most part throughout this poem, even if there are multiple syllables, there's this really strong downbeat twice in each line. It's very nice. And then look what she does. The green of Jesus is breaking the ground, and the sweet smell of delicious Jesus is opening the house. Ooh, let's just stop there. First, Jesus is green, breaking the ground. What does that do for you as a reader? For, for me, to think about it this way, the breaking the ground, you could say the green is rising from the ground, the green is springing from the ground. The idea that it's breaking the ground, there's this slight sense of violence in that first couplet. Yes. The green of Jesus is breaking the ground. It's got to do something that's a little difficult in order to come to life here. But then as soon as we've done that, we, we move to this banquet scene, this sweet smell of delicious Jesus opening the house. And for me, what I see happening as we move through the poem is there's, th there's really three concrete images at the beginning here. The green of Jesus is breaking the ground. That's grass. Uh, sweet smell of delicious Jesus, that's food. The dance of Jesus music, right? So there's this music. And for me, it's this image of somebody walking up to a house for a feast. And we've just had the poem on Easter. And so you get the sense that like, this is the Easter banquet meal after the service is over. And the first thing they see is the lawn and the new green grass is coming up. And then they open the door to the house and it's filled with this rich smell of food. And then they hear the music that's filling the whole place. And it's a party, you know, and I get that sense of progression into the party through the first three sort of concrete images of this poem. Sensory imagery is so important here. So I love what you're saying about the breaking of the ground. There's something so visceral, so primal about that image. Yes, it's Jesus as grass, okay? But it's much more than that. It's sort of like that there's a breaking of the boundary between the living and the dead, between God and man. Like whatever that boundary is, is completely permeable in the world of this poem, and it's visible, and it's full of color, and it's vibrant. Then there's the smell of delicious Jesus, which is interesting because you're visualizing entering the home, smelling the feast, looking forward to that with anticipation. I'm also thinking of Jesus's body as a sacrifice for us as well. And the celebratory nature of the dance of Jesus music has hold of the air. That's amazing that that celebratory nature could grasp the air. There's so much miraculous work that's being done in the poem. I can't get over the way that turn of phrase works. When we talk about simple poetry as not being simplistic, the music has hold of the air is, is one way to put it. And when you put it that way, 
it's just incredible because it's, it's as though you have to breathe in the music because the music is more than the air itself. It's that the music is out is is a bigger reality than the air itself in which the music is held. It's the music holding the air. And the way that that phrase comes right before it, the dance of Jesus' music. Jesus modifies both the dance there, the dance of Jesus, and music. It's Jesus' music. And so the way even she positions these words, she creates this incredibly, I mean, this is very few words in this poem, very few turns, and they're all very simple words. And yet it does this incredible work of giving you this scene of a house filled with joy. So you already talked about the repetition of the word Jesus. The word that is also repeated frequently in this poem is and. She uses and multiple times. It's as if Everything in this poem is accumulating and building upon what we've already learned. So every sense builds upon the next, and it's so layered. The sweet smell of delicious Jesus is opening the house, and the dance of Jesus. Music has hold of the air, and the world is turning in the body of Jesus. All of a sudden, we're in the body of Jesus. We're in this really dramatic celebratory scenario, but it's as if everything is Jesus and then we're inside the body of Jesus. This is another awesome example of where poetry is not merely summarizing or describing experience, but creating an experience. I feel like I need to be transformed as a result of reading this poem. One of the things she does in this in this poem, in this very simple short poem, is actually an incredible amount of the theological work. You already touched upon, there's this sacramental image of, of the community communion feast and the banquet. And there's all kinds of imagery in the Bible of the wedding banquet at the end of times, but also communion and the Last Supper and so forth. And that's bound up in the first part of the poem. But the end of the poem, suddenly we're inside the body of Jesus. And suddenly we're recalling that that opening to the Gospel of John, where, where Jesus is the word who stands at the beginning of creation. And through Jesus, all of creation comes into being. And the imagery here really turns Jesus and God into a kind of mother figure where the world is seen as coming out of the womb of God as Jesus. The world is turning in the body of Jesus. And actually, there's a very long Christian tradition of thinking of God as mother figure and even Jesus as a kind of mother figure. And you know, that last line really gets to me. I'm so moved by it. Um, And I think I'm moved by it in a way that maybe I wouldn't have been even just a few years ago. It's the simplest thing in the world, and yet it's so profound. And the future is possible. Because of everything Lucille Clifton has articulated in this poem, the future is possible. Can you talk about where this poem lands and why that's so incredible? I think this payoff line is incredible because, first of all, it's not just the last line of this poem. It's the last line of the whole series of biblical poems that she wrote here. In the book. In the book. So it's the it's the payoff to the whole series. The future is possible. Just four simple words. And when you hear her read this poem, she pauses before she says that last line. And she even inserts a word once when she reads it. She says, children... The future is possible. To think about that in context. So if you were to say that the future is possible, to say a a wealthy, well-off, comfortable sort of congregation, it wouldn't have the same sort of resonance. Of course, the future is possible. The future is an expectation. It's not necessarily a hope. But I had a pastor, Pastor Thurman Williams, who I'll never forget. He used to preach and minister in Sandtown in Baltimore, which is a very difficult neighborhood there. And he did more than his 
fair share of teenage funerals. And he once said to our congregation here in St. Louis, he says, when you minister to teenagers who do not expect to live past the age of 25, or who expect to be either dead or in jail at the age of 25, who do not have that kind of hope, they live very different lives when that's the future that they expect. And if you think about reading this line in that context, after the joy of this poem and the resurrection of this Jesus, and then you get to this line and you say, the future is possible, then it has a very different resonance. It's a very different sort of expression of hope, and it's incredibly powerful. And there are those who Clifton wrote a great deal of poems to, she wrote a great deal of children's books to, who need to hear precisely this line. <sighs> I am so moved by this poem. Um, with with everything that we've said, should, should we read it again? Absolutely. Spring Song. The green of Jesus is breaking the ground, and the sweet smell of delicious Jesus is opening the house, and the dance of Jesus' music has hold of the air, and the world is turning in the body of Jesus, and the future is possible. Thank you for reading that again. What a beautiful poem. And thanks to Boa Editions for granting us permission to read this poem, which you can find in the collected poems of Lucille Clifton. To learn more about Clifton, please visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. And please subscribe to Poetry for All wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, please leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you.